the Life After High School podcast. Garth Mullins, brother, thank you very much for your patience and uh, your time on the show this evening. Uh, no worries, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I can't begin to even tell you how much of a fan I am of Crackdown. And I know we will get to it because I have many, uh, I have two or three things I want to share with you that how it's impacted me. Um, but first, um, do you uh, tell a little bit of, to people who don't know you about yourself and uh, kind of with that, your transition from high school until uh, where we are now? Sure. Um, I guess your podcast is called Life After High School, and the vast majority of my life has been after high school. And uh, to be honest, I've sort of blanked out most of high school. I hate. I hated high school. You know, it's just like it's gone there. But uh, I'm uh, I'm a opioid user. I have been my whole life since I was a teenager. Uh, mostly heroin and then uh, methadone. I've lived through a couple of overdose epidemics. I lived through the HIV big outbreak, the big first wave, and now we got a another pandemic, another virus. Um, and I've been an activist uh, for a lot of my life too. Uh, more recently, around trying to um, get uh, better treatment and rights for people who use drugs, um, you know, so that basically it's not just all cops and jails that there's something more for us. And I've been making a podcast about that called crackdown for the last two years. Awesome. So with that, that how, what was, when did you start to, if we look back, you mentioned it was all, most of it was a blur. All of it, even, I think you mentioned was um, all of it was a blur. How did you, at what point did you start, to realize, okay, there's mistakes I'm being made and I got to do something better for this cause. If you remember. Yeah. I mean, I guess, um, I've just been seeing people carted off to jail and dying for my whole life. I've gone to must've been 10 or 20 times as many funerals as I have weddings or baby showers or anything like that. And, um, and, you know, seeing it all happen, being a drug user through, uh, I live in Vancouver, and we had an officially declared, uh, declared public health emergency in the 90s for strong heroin at the same time as uh, the biggest spread of, of HIV in the industrialized world. And so a lot of drug user activism started then. So this is where safe injection sites came from and needle distribution, needle exchanges, all that kind of stuff that all came from the activism of a generation ago, you know, like 20 years ago. Uh, and that's, that's where I saw, you know, my life was getting um, brutalized. Uh, and I, I wanted something better. I wanted to live, I wanted my friends to live. And then about five, six years ago, when I saw this happening again in Vancouver, yeah. and across North America, I just couldn't fucking believe it. And so I uh, tried to put my radio making skills and activism skills to work with other people in the movement who are trying to bring a little dignity and agency for people who use drugs. Mm -hmm. I love that. Now, how, how do you deal with the mental health aspect of being so close to like to the deaths and the crisis that goes on while I, from what I know of our few conversations we've had, you're, you seem very positive and optimistic. Also, while you're interviewing your guests for your show, how do you maintain that while being 
so close. Yeah, I don't know if I'm positive and optimistic. My dad calls me a pessimist. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I think I just have a good sense of humor about things, but I don't yeah. feel hopeful a lot of the time. Um, but I think that uh, too often we have to find hope where there isn't. We're like yeah. almost required to like have school spirit at all times or something. And I think yeah. there's a great um, liberatory potential in just saying what's true. And just saying like, look, uh, you know, four or 5,000 people are going to die in Canada from this pre preventable thing uh, this year, you know, 11 or 12 today. Uh, like that's not good. Right. No. Like and we can just, we can just be with that for a moment. And out of that truth can come the activism of, of what to do next. But if you're always trying to false hope yourself, uh, it's very hard on you too. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I guess what I what I like is I like talk when I'm talking to people, I like to find out what else is in their life other than drugs and jail and stuff. Um, loads of musicians uh, like there's there's just a lot of musicians that uh, work, um, you know, in the industry that also uh, are drug users. There's lots of people with uh, creativity and families and that like, I don't know, bowling, everything. Right. People are just drug users or regular humans. So just seeing that um, makes me a little happy. That's awesome. So what I'm curious to know on that subject, what is something, what is a big, big misconception people have of drug users? Well, I think it's like, uh, it comes right. from uh, TV news and movies and stuff like that, that it's, uh, you know, somebody's kind of just out on the street and uh like in really rough shape and maybe twitching around and stuff and yeah there's definitely people like that but um most people who use drugs most people who use drugs every day who are wired uh like like i am um yep. they are uh, in mm -hmm. your workplace or in your school or like in your community or your church or maybe your family right like yep. mostly people just keep on keeping on and um I think there's a bit of laziness in the in in journalism sometimes when you go to find the drug user who is visible because you don't have a house or because you're just like so disrupted in your life that you have to use on the street. But um, most people aren't like that. And the coroner uh, will back me up on this because the BC coroners here mostly finds uh, people who've died from overdoses at home in a house alone by themselves. And half of everybody that overdosed, uh, you know, got up and was going to work in the morning. And so the idea that you can imagine a drug user to be a certain thing, whatever, whatever most people have in their head, it's probably not right, you know? Yeah, I think when it, and this is something that uh, I'll get to in a bit, but crackdowns kind of changed my perspective on, and I don't want to peel off this layer just yet, but because I think there's more to it, but I think I have that exact image as soon as you said, homeless-esque looking person on the street with a sign, not moving, twitching all right. That is the standard. And that was for myself. And I'll speak for myself because I only can in this regard. That was what I had as an image for the longest time until mm. the last two, three years and where it's now done a complete 180. Well, it's, that's, that's incredible. And I think that's something that a lot of people I love that you mentioned that because a lot of people I think need to hear that because it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. People are, oh, walk downtown. You'll see this. You'll see that. Like you're saying it's like, that's a few of them. 
but it's not majority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's just uh, the numbers are, are so huge. Like I, I think there's 100,000 or something like that, uh, drug users in British Columbia. And so pe- people are just everywhere, all walks of life, I think. You know, we, we have fashioned for ourselves this incredibly alienating world, you know, um, and people really feel a sense of futurelessness. You know, like if I was graduating high school right now and thinking about climate change and all that, I'd be like, what the fuck, you know, and housing prices and jobs and like, well, I have to work for like Fudora and this and that. And, you know, I mean, all at the same time, Uh, like who doesn't need to like try to put a lid on that anxiety a little bit and that bleak sense of futurelessness. Of course, people are going to try and medicate themselves a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you add pandemic on top of it. I mean. My God, like I personally don't know how people don't use drugs. Like I don't know how people go through the world like just stone cold sober. You know, that's um, yeah. that's a mystery to me. I I don't know, I don't know, because I definitely I was talking to a friend of mine about it earlier today as well, and he's like, man, between the cold weather, like I'm in northern Ontario, so the weather's mm-hmm. we it's a it's a bit it's a dry cold compared to out west, but um. Still, winter in Canada is no uh, no picnic, no matter what coast you're on. But, hey, yellow um, knife kid, right yeah. here. Yeah. Oh, so I'm one to talk then. But uh, geez, wow, no kidding. So those winters must have been something else then. Way up yeah. north. Yeah, yeah. Geez, yeah. That mixed with like talking to my friends, like, man, I just drink now. All I do is drink to get through get through this pandemic. Like, and he's lucky. He's one of the lucky ones who gets to go to work every day mm-hmm. so insane. yeah i don't know yeah i think a lot of people are drinking more i think people are doing more of whatever it is that gets them through and you know i i understand yeah yeah wow yeah it's a she's di- it's a difficult it's a difficult thing so i guess what i guess then what i what i'm curious is and i these are relatively sensitive subjects at least for myself i feel very very i have i feel like i have to be very careful when talking about these subjects and i don't know if that's just a personal i'm not i'm not a user i haven't been however so for that reason i think i'm not able to get like to feel as comfortable being open about these conversations Um, But I try to stay open minded as much as I can on these issues because they do affect all of us, most people more than some, like more than some, a lot more. Um, But what I want to know is how, what made you, what was your heroin um, and methadone time like? Like, how did that, how long were you on it and how did you end up weaning off it, if so? My heroin time started when I was a teenager and my methadone time ran up till this morning. So <laughs> it's, uh, I, I mean, I mean, it's going to run probably the rest of my life. I'll be on some kind of opioids the rest of my life. I just want them to be uh, like from a pharmacy or that I know what, um, what concentration what's in them. And I know there's no uh, nothing that's going to kill me in them, you know? So um, and so luckily that's, that's what methadone is. It's, it's like, methadone is like a very similar molecule to heroin. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not that, that, that much different. Uh, it's just, it's, it's legal, you know, and it comes from a pharmacy and it's not going to just like 
kill my ass like with one shot you know and yeah uh and so i mean how did it start what happened like i have always um for as long as i can remember felt like um i don't know like a, a like a ghost in my own life you know like somebody who is like haunting around the edges of what normal world is doing like school or my family or whatever anything else you know and i'm not sure how that happened it's part because I got albinism, like I'm albino, I have uh, really bad eyesight. So that makes me kind of weird and different. But also, you, you know, I was exposed to uh, someone taking care of me when I was a kid who shouldn't have been around children, like just should should be probably in jail or something. Uh, and that probably didn't help. But all those explanations of like, there's this cause in your childhood or this, they all seem kind of too reductive and simple to me. Um, mm. I also think that we make a world where Lots of people feel alienated. Lots of people feel like I do, like a ghost in the world. And uh, you're trying to find a way to get back in. And when you're when you're kind of like just oh, sort of outside of things like that, you just hear this like just the alienation is just hitting you. It's just howling over you, you know. And so you start as a pretty young teenager, you know, just trying to find a, a way to shut it off, you know, music, drugs, drinking, whatever. And then for me anyway. I did heroin and I'm all of a sudden just like there's a switch and it's just really? like the howling stops and I'm just like, fuck, I feel normal. I know wow. what everybody else is doing. You know, like I didn't have this feeling anymore of being outside things. I didn't have this feeling anymore. Like I wish I didn't exist. You know, I used to have that feeling a lot, like, not like, not like I want to, I want to make a dramatic act of suicide or something. Just like, I wish that I was not here you know yeah and uh, uh and once you find the switch to turn off all that bullshit all that howling you're just going to reach for it again you know and and you don't hate yourself anymore you're not alien to everything anymore you're just like you're at peace it's okay and so i didn't I, it's like i didn't even think oh this is great i'm so high i'm so fucked up woohoo i was just like yeah oh this is just calmness you know this is just like and so people say talk about euphoria and all that stuff and i'm just like it's like this most profound sense of relief, you know, like you've been carrying around a big painful backpack full of, you know, ton of rocks and yeah. you get to put it down and feel light, you know, for a minute. It's that sensation, but the consistency of it. Mm -hmm. Wow. I think the way you make it sound when you said it's not a woohoo, I'm high, I'm fucked up. It's a, I feel good about myself. I feel ready. I don't feel like an outcast. All these issues and this anxiety I had is lifted. That's kind of scary mm -hmm. to think that. It's not something that like, oh, we get high. We know, oh man, you do it. You get high, you get fucked up. You have a good time. You have a crazy trip and you come back to life and you can control when you do it again. That's like, that's crazy how it feels like it takes away all the anxiety and it just makes you like zen. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, uh, everything around me was telling me I was wrong. You know, like, uh, I just felt wrong, looked wrong. I was like, uh, just like rejected from everything that was right. And and certainly the some of the unhelpful people that should have been in jail <laughs> around me, they yeah. they thrived on making making kids feel like that, right? Like they just want to, yeah. to make you feel like this dependent alien. And, uh, and so all these, all these things were telling me teachers, whatever, like, you're just, you're wrong. Like you're fundamentally like a wrong entity. And then yeah. heroin says, no, you're not, you're all right. You're fine. And so, uh, 
And so actually it was heroin helped me feel a little bit in control, like a little bit less uh, uh, like I just wanted to end it or just be not here, you know? So um, really, and I, I, I'm not unique in this. So many people who are dope fiends have said this sort of thing. It's just like, it, yeah. it actually allows you to function in this way or allows you to continue. And, um, and I was just like, damn, I was just like very generic, uh, very generic dope fiend in that way, you know? Jeez. So now this methadone, because it's a similar same compound of chemicals does that does it do this does it have the same effect except it's more controlled is that the is that i'm tr I'm trying to really understand yeah, yeah almost so of course um methadone and suboxone and these medications to treat you yeah. they they sort of take the punch out of it you know right. um they sort of sand off the parts that are really that really uh the, the big sort of push the big rush of heroin they kind of take take yeah. all that out um and but what you get is you get this place where you're not dope sick like so right. th this is the other thing is heroin stops the howling but then once you're wired to heroin you'll just be sick as a fucking dog if you stop like oh. i can't even i never know how to describe it to people because it's so awful it's like <laughs> being sick in your soul it's like you're you're the ghost in the shell is ill and wants to get out oh you know and um and and so like methadone stops that from happening so it methadone oh. really takes care of the physical stuff and um if you are able to get your life into a place where you can take care of some of that alienation some of that howling through other, other things like um you know i got i got ptsd treatment and, and that um then then it can work out you know but but absent those kind of other things you'll just keep throwing methadone at a problem and it won't quite get there. So for a lot of people, right. they take methadone and maybe it reduces the amount of heroin or something else they have to use, but uh, they're, they're still sort of, they're still being chased by their own, uh, their own demons and that, you know? Wow. I can't, and I can imagine you not like being it, being it as difficult as it is for you to explain and describe what dope sickness is. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. And I cannot do that. I well, let me let me try. Um, so you know, I, I if you get a good, like not contaminated, not fentanyl, nothing else, just like good old, old school heroin. You take that. Probably about twelve hours later, you're gonna start to like get this sort of, uh, you know, maybe chilly sweat. Your nose will start running a bit. Maybe your legs will start sort of twitching and kicking, and that'll just be yeah. the earliest bit. And you'll kind of feel that anxiety starting up, you know, you'll just feel all those before you even feel a physical dope sickness, you'll feel that anxiety and that howling starting to back up. But then along with it, you get these uh, early symptoms, like I was saying, you know, runny nose and, and the sweats and twitching a bit. And then you're going to start uh, throwing up like really bad and out of your ass as well. You're just going to be spewing oh. out of all orifices and you're just, you're going to be uh, like, you're, your muscles are going to be like almost contracting and seizing and you're just no. you th so the clock starts running and you'll be like okay at this certain point i'm not going to be able to move to do anything about this anymore and i'll just be in this hell for days and um yeah and it gets uh, it gets pr pretty bad um you know people can have seizures and stuff like that off it and uh mm. but you're just uh you're just kind of in this um in this deeply bad place to me it feels like i can it feels like my skin is wrong and my nerves are wrong and like my cells are wrong. It just, everything's yeah. all like 
doesn't fit together right anymore. It's all kind of, they're all, it's like between everything, there's sand. So the skin's like, uh, and the, the oh. bones are kind of cracky. And it's just like, yeah, it's mm. j- just like you feel like a ship at sea all like creaking and fucked up. Yeah, I, it's, oh, I man. still struggle to explain it properly, but uh, yeah, even, it is profoundly that. unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, it just, it sounds like I'm cringing hearing, even thinking of things that I can relate to, like runny nose, twitching legs and stuff. I'm like, I wouldn't want that. And then both ends, oh my. Yeah. Yeah, runny nose and twitching legs. Yeah. That's just the start. That's just that that's is your beginning. that is your uh, entree, your amuse bouche. You know, your appetizer <laughs> for the main course, which is going to be a lot of spew. Oh man, oh no. <laughs> so, and that that's like you said, pure heroin. That's the that's the clean stuff. Oh my. Well, I was just thinking of uh, when there's when there when we're talking about fentanyl and street yeah. fentanyl and other stuff that's in the cut. It can it can mean uh, that that comes on even sooner than twelve hours, oh, you know. My. So I was trying to give your like the yeah. baselines sort of situation, but yeah, l- like depending on the type of opioid can depend on how fast. Oh, and then when uh, opioids have now been the drug supply is getting mixed with benzodiazepines, that can make things even more complicated. Mm-hmm. So, were you? Have you ever experienced heroin with the fentanyl mix? Like, have you ever experienced that stuff? Because it definitely sounds like a different breed. I mean, I've done uh, I've done fentanyl and heroin, um, but I've always known which one I was doing. Um, okay, okay. And, and and they are different. And then also, what is sold as fentanyl changes too. You know, so the potency, uh-huh. the mix, the cut, the stuff that's in it. So it's often cut with. Uh, lots of other stuff you know um so yeah that all that all changes a lot and then of course if it's not mixed properly one little uh one little um you know flap or one little hit can can contain more of it than maybe others from the same batch and that causes the overdoses you know the the uncertain concentration uh and then so it almost puts them over the limit when their system's used to a certain amount and then all of a sudden they get this thing that they're not used to and then their body goes into shock. And I guess the overdose is the way. Well, imagine right? if you went up to a bar and you said, I'd okay. like a drink. And yeah. you didn't know what you were going to get. It's just like, I want alcohol. And yeah. the guy gives you like a coffee mug full of something. You don't know whether it's like Coors Light or whether yeah. it's absinthe or tequila. But you just have to slam that fucker back. Jeez. You know? <laughs> so you would want oh, to man. know right you'd want to know okay it's it's tequila i'll just have I'd one shot glass of tequila right i don't want a coffee cup or a beer stein all at yeah. once you know um i mean oh, i know some people that's all right if they're like professional frat boy drinkers or whatever maybe they can yeah. do it but uh yeah not me i don't want to drink a a pint of tequila all at once yeah no thanks no yeah. thanks Garth. so no. like if you if you know then it then it helps right like and yeah. you're like okay i'm gonna have a pint like me you know, i have a pint of beer pint of bitter or something like that and and it's you're like right this is great but if it's like uh it ranges between you don't know whether it's gonna be five percent or forty percent or whatever sixty percent yeah you, you, it changes your whole everything wow Oh man, that's a good example. I think that, mm. that's a really good example because I think a lot of people can relate to that. I'll tell you, there's good political uh, moments of this example too, because mm. if you think, what is it that makes drugs 
or heroin or what's sold as heroin, you know, down, whatever, not like tequila. It's nothing about the molecule. It's the law, right? So the fact is, we always know what the alcohol percent is when we're buying booze because it's regulated, because it's not illegal, right? But whereas drugs is illegal, it's not regulated. It means that people are fucking mixing that shit up in the back of their car or in some room somewhere or whatever. And maybe they're having to do it quick so they don't get caught by the cops. And then, and then we're not able to sit in a bar and slowly nurse it. We got to sometimes do it quick, especially if we don't have a a safe place to do it or whatever. Uh, So it's like the fact that it's illegal, not the fact of the molecules, what makes it so dangerous. I mean, that's the most dangerous thing about hard drugs is the law. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think, the, the only, I think there was one moment that stood out and we'll get to Crackdown in a sec, but I was when, and my friends and I laughed because we were on our way out West and I, uh, we were listening to an episode and I can't quite remember which episode. Oh, it was the one, well, it was the one where you uh, interviewed, I believe it was the chief of police mm. or like head of media. Yeah, the, with, uh, yeah media police. person. Yeah. Yeah. And you you kind of like got it sounded we all laughed because like there are five of us like co- like 20 guys in their early 20s laughing that where you're like what if i had uh heroin on me now would you arrest me and he's kind of put in like a weird spot where it's and you could hear it and then it's one of those situations that we're just like oh my the fucking gull on this guy <laughs> yeah, this in the yeah. yeah i was like oh no that's where now that you meant when you mentioned sense of humor, I immediately thought of that. And I was like, yeah, he's just I was like, I, I hope he's playing around. Oh, I sure I was having a bad day. <laughs> yeah, sure. I was. And I was just well, I was being a little edgy there, I guess. But um, yeah. also I had my producer, Alex, with me and everybody on the team knew that I was down at the cop shop interviewing this uh, media spokesperson cop. And we had all the mics going and everything. Right. So. Uh, and I also didn't have anything illegal on me at all. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I just thought, oh, this is a chance to sort of fuck with the guy a bit. But you know. <laughs> I was like, that's the most gangster thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. I, oh, that's too funny. It's like, hey, sir, can I have some of your time to talk about this? And then um, how would you would you? Re- oh, man. Uh, oh, OK. Wow. I think so that's he was good, he was just telling uh, me how, oh, we don't bother. We don't bother people for possession anymore which is not true by the way the vancouver police are bothering drug users probably right this minute um the charges are different but he was just saying oh possession isn't even something to worry about anymore and so i just pat my pocket and i say hey well what about the heroin i got right here and he kind of shits his pants for a minute and i'm like no no no, i'm just i'm just messing you know it's it's okay but i just kind of wanted to see for real like i wasn't just randomly screwing with him i was (laughs) tactically and specifically screwing with him so yeah, it was awesome. well. Thanks. I'm I'm glad you guys. I'm glad I could keep you company on the on the car ride west. Yeah, it was a. I don't know if you've ever uh, done that exact like like a long car ride like that or that one or driven through the prairies even. There was oh, dude. I used to that. play in a band and we toured. I've been on every boring ass car oh, so ride. You know better than most. Band full of bass player farts. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. yeah. So when I say the car reeked of uh, stale farts and bong water, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. That was it. I was like, oh, how was the trip? I'm like, stale farts and bong water and uh, crackdown podcast playing on loops. So that was, uh, that was good. Yeah, the boys loved it. So that was, uh, oh, man, that's too funny. So 
how did you uh how did switching gears then how did you get started in uh podcasting tell us a bit about that um you know i was uh i was actually i've been a sort of a writer freelancer uh for a long time and uh i did i did uh community radio you know uh back in the day uh had a radio show and um I also made uh, documentaries for CBC. Like I've made a few um, documentaries for this show called Ideas, which yep. does place hour-long shows, documentaries at night. And um, so I pitched them this idea, basically the beginning of the idea for Crackdown. And they were just like, I don't, uh, what do you, I don't even know what you mean. And and I think it was in part because I'm terrible at like just pitching an idea like I'm trying to sell a car. Like I'm just not, that's not me. I'm not that yeah, great you know, at so it. But, uh, you know, the idea stuck with me and, um, you know, I met this, uh, met this, happened to meet this guy who was working with us at, at the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, Dr. Ryan McMahon. He's a academic and a researcher and uh, he was, uh, you know, studying the effects of the drug war and all this. And he would come and report the findings to us in the, in the drug user organization. And, um, you know, we started to take him to meetings where we were trying to you know, convince the government of shit. So he would, you know, we'd present a little bit about what we'd been living and then he'd present a little bit about what the research says. And then the government official would be like, oh, you know, hmm, interesting. And of course we never managed to change the government people's mind. But one day walking out of one of those meetings, I think uh, Ryan said to me, well, we're not getting anywhere with these people but it might make good radio. And I said, oh yeah, <laughs> good, good point. And, uh, and so then we, the idea was born. Um, we searched out some academic funding sources. Um, we got a hold of um, Sam Fenn and Alexander Kim, uh, who work with me, and Lisa Hale also, who are sort of like the production side. And then the group of activists that I mostly work with uh, became the editorial board, and we just started making episodes about two years ago. But you know, it took a it took a year to get it started. So I get, we probably started talking about it at the end of um, 2017 planned it for 2018 and launched in the beginning of 2019 nice yeah a mm -hmm. couple of years now two years yeah. almost yeah just shy yeah we're in our years. we're in our third year right now so we're just uh nice. we i guess we put our our most recent episode on december 31st or something like that so we're mm -hmm. ready to do another one shortly <clears throat> yeah and it was cool because i was the way my kind of because again I, I mentioned it when we chatted the first time um when we first met um how i was introduced to it like a year ago a year or two ago and um it was right after the ryan mcmahon episode and um mm -hmm. being and then once he was able once he showed me and then downloading the episodes and then i would i worked for a company where i was doing the uh, renovations and i enjoy that type of work but what i don't enjoy is whenever it snowed Every morning at 5 a.m., we'd have to go to two properties. Depending on who you were, you got assigned to two properties and shovel them. Mm. So me, being naive in the moment, go, man, my life is the worst. This is the worst thing of all time. There's nobody experiencing worse things than me right at this moment. So what do I do? I take out my trusty earphones, take out my phone. I uh, put on, put, plug them in, stick them in my ears, uh, and hit play on an episode of Crackdown. And when it's dark at 5 a.m., freezing cold, blowing snow, and I'd rather be anywhere else, it puts things into perspective, hearing the stories, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, I feel you. I used to, uh, 
I used to work uh, construction as a construction laborer too. And um, this dude used to pick me up who was like uh, 18 or something, you know, he'd pick me up at, at like seven in the morning in his Camaro or whatever. And we'd drive to some, um, you know, to the West, to some uh, mansion or something like that, that we had to like, uh, like dig out the basement, you know, like make the basement like three feet deeper. Yeah. And it's just like, you just have to work one of those, you know, like jackhammers or like we had an electric one and like just swing the swing the the pick and oh. dig it out. It's just like just endless, right? And I, I had to yeah. dig the sump deeper, right? Like, oh, and I just remember being down in the bottom of the sump and it's like, you know, you're in two feet of mucky water and you're just digging out and trying to throw the. Like, yeah, you're getting nowhere. Yeah. And then of course, <laughs> uh, and here's where the world's meet is uh, lots of people in the industry use drugs and you know it's just like well this is why like i'm gonna spend the whole morning down this hole trying to throw the terrible water up over the edge you know like the terrible yeah. mud and it's just like oh, and no. then the guy and his first you know someone to have their like rumpus room or whatever you know it's like i don't know yeah room they barely even use or it's for their grandkids when they stay once a year like yeah some bs room like that oh man that's okay i mean i wish i had a rumpus room i would turn it into like band practice space you know like yeah, i feel cool it <laughs> but hopefully yeah, i wouldn't it. be making someone like me dig it out for me <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh that's awesome how do you um go about creating episodes of crackdown like what's your from here's an idea to the follow-through and the execution uh, well, we bring the editorial board together once a month and we talk about like what's what's happening and what we want to cover. And um, we usually get a list of list of sort of topic areas out of those conversations. And then um, we go try to find funding for it. So maybe we'll see there's a theme like a few about um, policing or something like that. And so we'll try to find an academic funding source that will uh, fund us to make them mm -hmm. get the money. Uh, and then we break it down into more detailed stories, like, like, you know, police is just a topic, like we want to cover something specific in that, you know, and yeah. so it's like, who is it that we want to talk to? What do we want to reveal? Um, what research are we going to uh, sort of show? Because um, there's always a, what's the life like, like, what do we experience? And then there's also what does the research show? Because there's usually yeah. a really good um, connection between that stuff. And, um, and then we do the interviews. So I uh, will, we'll figure out who we want to talk to. Um, you know, some of the producers will start reading a little bit about what the, um, you know, maybe if they're a researcher, some of their work, you know, we'll try and figure out more about a person who's just in the life. Maybe we'll pre-interview them or just maybe I'll go walk around with them and, and interview them on the mic or we'll, we'll schedule an interview. And, mm -hmm. um, so we'll get a bunch of tape in the can and then we'll start to figure out what's the story structure. How does this all go together? So that it's like interesting, you know, so it's not just like, here's a bunch of shit that happens in a list, but like, here's a point that is dramatically revealed over the hour yeah. or something like that. We kind of are our story structure nerds a little bit um, because I, I realized um, growing up with and being with and living with uh, drug users and just people who, share their lives with each other through story that you don't want to lose that 
you know, there's always somebody around in, in the places where I've lived or the communities I've been, who's kind of known to be like a really great bullshitter, like a really good storyteller, <laughs> like a raconteur. And, and you kind of want to catch a bit of that fire, right? Like they, yeah. they make everyone listen. Everyone wants to listen to them at the bar or something like that. Everybody wants to get, get in on their story. Yeah. And, uh, so we want to tell it like that, you know, tell it good. And, and, like and really good storytellers are aware that you, you know, you save some information for the end. You, you make the narrative tension you introduce yeah. the character. You don't just say, um, oh, you know, they went to the clinic. You kind of make it a bit cinematic. Like you, maybe you describe the methadone clinic a bit or you give a sense of what they were wearing just enough so that you're like, you can imagine them, you know? So yeah. we do that. And then um, uh, we write the music, you know, like um, a, a few of us uh, play music. And so we'll, you know, sometimes I'll think, oh, this is, this is, this part needs really something that sounds like this. So me or, um, uh, my friend James, uh, he's really great. Like when you really hear this, the script and the music just lock right up. That's usually him. He's just got a, he's magic. Oh, wow. Somehow. Yeah. Um, Man, that's so cool. Yeah. And, and he does it without knowing the script. He'll be like, what are you writing? About? What do you feel? Yeah. He'll like somehow just like crawl in my head and he'll be texting me. Hey, Hey, what do you think of this? And I'll be like, damn, I was just writing something that's, that's perfect <laughs> for him. So He's just like magic like that somehow. So yeah, um, there's a really good chemistry between all, all the people uh, uh, working on it, you know? And then periodically throughout the process, I will talk to the, the people in the editorial board who are really like the experts in that. Like, yeah. for example, um, three of our editorial board are indigenous. So when we're talking about colonization, um, yep. um, like Shelda specifically led us, I should say too, um, we we lost Sharice uh, last year, but yeah, cool. uh, um, uh, yeah thank you yeah it was we i mean we've actually started out with an editorial board of nine and we have lost two in the two years we've been we've been going and i, I think it's uh and we also lost a, a close friend of the show ron uh last week so it's uh it's it, it keeps <laughs> it keeps going right but um yeah i, wow. I call the the person on the editorial board who who knows about the thing that we're doing most, you know, or who's most interested in, in talking with me about mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And then um, we just uh, polish that all up and, and, and put it out there. Nice. That's, that's so cool. That's awesome. That man, cause the music and like the way I, cause I think of all the podcasts I've listened to myself excluded yours has to be like crackdown has to be, like at least tied for number one with something or not like excluding my own. My favorite has to be crackdown. And I'm not just saying that because you're on the show. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I yeah. mean, we, we're 100%. lucky. We just get people who are really like Sam, he's the senior producer and me and him talk every day. And he's just like, he really, he really gets into it and we'll, we'll listen to a draft of it. And we'll be like, I'm getting a little bored in this part. What can we do to fix that? Or yeah. I don't understand why we're talking to this other person right now. Let's add in a little bit of an explanation why or a signpost, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, and so me and him, we kind of write the script all together, you know, on Google Docs. So it's like nice. the script is coming together and then we're putting like the little bits of tape uh, that we use, like bits of interviews and bits of people talking because we have, we transcribe that. So we have like basically figured out exactly what the show is going to look like. And then one of the last, well, the last big thing I do is I, I read the script and then, um, you know, Alex Kim, uh, he's just like, uh, he's like a sound artist basically. Yeah. So he, he, he stitches it all together and then he'll put some of his own like ideas into it, you know, and, um, 
Yeah, he's fantastic. He also takes all the photos for the podcast. So uh, oh, he's got a great eye. Yeah, he's just a, he's like a, he's, I mean, I'm just lucky. To, I mean, that's the success of the podcast is we just have fucking excellent people. Um, yeah. Like excellent people from the drug user activist movement, like the, the people who've been doing this since the start in Canada. And then also people who are really great at the art of audio storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I just happen to get to sit in the middle of, of all that and try to improve my own skills and keep up, you know? Yeah, no kidding, man. Cause it sounds, it's such a cool thing. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to have you on and being able to introduce, I've already introduced like at least 10 people to it, but thank you. Yeah, man, no worries. And I that's think that's entirely this, how it works. We have no yeah. um, advertising budget or like, promotional plan or we don't have t-shirts like we have yeah. no we should have t-shirts but like we just don't we haven't done any of that so it's all word of mouth so i really appreciate that yeah man no 100 i mean it's like you said like i one of the main drives that i that's interesting for me in this podcast journey is the storytelling i just have such a love for hearing good stories because that's a skill that i think i that i believe i have but I always want to keep it moving and like in or always growing, I should say. So keeping that skill and then hearing shows like yours that are different than mine, but also have unique stories, very unique perspectives and super interesting and fascinating, cool people that come on. And that's inspiring to me as a creator. And then when you say have shirts, I got one made for myself and that's quite literally it. And that, that was, uh, yeah, I see why, uh, yeah, don't, uh, it was more expensive than it should have been, but no regrets. <laughs> so, yeah, no regrets, you know, uh, we just got to grow, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, we, my friends and I, we listened to room or episode, I believe it was episode five or six, um, room eight, two, one at the Belmoral, if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Awesome. Um, that episode struck a chord with me and my four and me and my four good friends on the trip, just with the description and the storytelling and just, we're so easily able to picture and visualize the rooms at the hotel. And then when we, and I mentioned, I think I mentioned this to you when we, uh, when we chatted up the first time, um, we drove through the East side, like downtown East side on East Hastings street. And, I have a video and I want to send it to you. It's like five seconds long, but it's them reacting three days later to seeing the bell moral. Like um, <laughs> it was crazy. It was like out of a movie. It was really, it, I swear to God, it was, I'll send you the video. It's awesome. But to see how they reacted and even myself like filming while they're like, Oh my God, yo, that's about, that's it. That's how, that's the one from the show. We were just, and me going, what, you got like that they're all just so fascinated and they're like looking at it and i'm like man this is this is crazy so just to see that little things like that are able to like resonate or make such an impact through your storytelling just with a couple buddies of mine seeing something like that and remembering it from your story is pretty cool because it it's a building it's just a building to them but because they know the history and the story it's a it's now an experience 
Yeah, man. I mean, I just, I never would have thought anybody would be excited to see the ball moral ever, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I guess it just shows you the power of like <laughs> connecting it to like human struggles and yeah. um, like letting people in. Uh, you know, and I, I think we just try to do that with everything is make people care about um, the, just the people who are my friends, you know, who, who yeah. we work with and, and, and the places like these little intimate spaces, like the, you know, the injection room um, with the yellow linoleum, I think I described that in, in uh, episode two or something. Um, these little, these little tiny places that, um, that instead of being like this, like this gritty urban, oh, scary, you want to feel how they actually feel a little bit, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I think Sam, Sam wrote the line in, um, in that episode about, about the Balmoral, because we were talking about the, uh, there's this woman there who makes roast beef sandwiches for everybody in the yep. building. And if you give a couple bucks, uh, you can get a roast beef sandwich. And then Jay, the main guy in that episode, he actually fixes people's computers and phones and yep. stuff in the building. And Sam goes, damn, I wish I lived somewhere that I had roast beef sandwiches and, uh, and an IT guy right upstairs. Yep. And we're like, oh yeah, we should, we should say that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no way. That's awesome. That's super cool. Man, you, um, I listened to an episode this afternoon, um, doing my catch up and, um, I think it was the second most recent one. Oh no, it was the most recent one, but you guys have a Canada land one collab kind of thing. Um, I believe the most recent one, um, you mentioned something about the Vancouver Olympics, mm -hmm. right? And, um, the prediction and you correct me if I'm wrong. Um, from what I remember was that doing that it brings up the revenue to the city and the city makes a lot of money but then that would cause the number of homelessness or the homeless person rate percentage and overdose percentages to increase as well yeah um i mean like the that. big the big trouble with the olympics is that it's like a giant advertisement to the whole world this come live here like this is a yeah. great place right and so everybody who's got millions of extra dollars is like well i'll invest over and yeah. so that just drives up rents, right? Like it's just been yeah. the last 10 years here has been like ludicrous for, for the increase in uh, real estate, like property values and rents. And just like, so everything, all the old places are getting like demoed and turned into posh housing and big, big expensive condo towers where they're like $700,000 to buy a little unit or whatever. Um, yeah, with no yard. Yeah, it's, and it just drives everybody out. Like it makes no room yeah. for for anybody else. So this is a lot. What we were saying is like that if the if the governments are going to do something, because that took the city government, the provincial government, and the federal government all did the Olympics. If you're going to spend billions, because they don't get they don't get revenue from the Olympics, they spend right. it. So it costs them a lot of money to put it on. It's like why don't you spend that money on something that's good instead of a party? And something right. that won't have the side effect of driving rents up because we know mm. this happens because we can look at other places that have held the Olympics and the hyper gentrification that occurs afterwards. So yeah, the Olympics really, I mean, it was not a cheap place to live before the Olympics, but fuck, did it get a lot worse after. And, oh, uh, and so we said at the time, you know, as, as activists, as community organizers, we said, this is a bad idea. Don't do this. And, um, 
Of course, also the, there's a lot of stepped up policing during the Olympics. You know, they want to pretty up the city and kind of get yeah. all the undesirable things out and people pushed away and that always mm -hmm. happens. So, you know, we were, we were watching that happen too. So um, yeah, we, we did talk about um, in that episode, uh, I think episode 21, it was called control. Yeah. We talked yeah. about the effect that that had um, when um, the government bought up some of these old hotels and uh, you know, they realized right away, oh, these are full of like rats and they're fire traps and we have to renovate them a little bit. So mm -hmm. when the government renovated them, they also put in a lot of sort of um, fob key passes and, and, yep. and, and video cameras and stuff. And some of the people in that episode kind of were like, this feels a little bit like a prison or a hospital or both. And so from the, yeah. the, the shabby yet homey feeling of a place like the Balmoral, which I mean, really it did, it was a pretty fucking bad place by the end there. It was a pretty big wreck, but Oof. there have been times when that, that had a very homey atmosphere where people felt really um, like a sense of ownership and a sense of community there. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and, and so you, you take a place and then you transform it into something that feels like there's a lot of control from some central authority. And of course, people are going to, it's going to change how people relate to the place. I think that was one of the points we were making. And the Olympics was a big turning point for a lot of that sort of stuff. Yeah, and it was just, it was cool to hear. And it's pretty fresh. Sorry, that's why I want to talk to you about it. Because um, what I like doing is I'll, when I listen to episodes of shows, uh, most recently with Crackdown, I'll be like, oh, man, I would love to ask them about this. Or I'd love to talk. I don't know if that happens to you and that with certain things like that. But it's oh, like, yeah, for hey, sure. I to, yeah, I got to talk to them about this. I'm really... Man, so hearing, yeah, hearing you iterate that again, and then going into it, I think too, right? There was like you couldn't if it was if you lived on the fourth floor and I hung out on the third, I couldn't just go hang out with you because I didn't have a key fob. That's right. Yeah, they is, they hmm. they lock off all the floors now. Yeah. Yeah. Even my closest thought to that is when I lived in Res. It was the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. lived in res in ottawa first year of school and that i thought was the closest like the closest i can relate to that but that yeah, same thing every floor key fob for the room key fob for the building key fob to get in key fob to get out key fobs for every room cameras everywhere people policing it and then the next year i'm living in a house of three like that's i just walk downstairs and i'm outside yeah. and i'm like this is different it's not like a jail cell almost it's a mm. nice looking fully renovated jail is still a jail so and then and, and when you get police but, when you get people who've had police in their lives since the beginning or maybe even for a few generations their family when mm. you get people whose parents have been like forcibly taken to residential school or something like that um yeah. get people who have spent a long time in prison like you don't want your home to be a continuation of that you know you want somewhere that's away from that. Nope. and if people can't escape that then it's like the people in that episode, uh, Joe and Patty, they just wanted to be away from it. It just had this effect of like just pushing them away, you know. It did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was it was a sad, kind of a sad ending. Mm -hmm. Sad ending to the story, but then realizing that most all of the episodes kind of have a, but all these stories like they're it's a sad story, and the perspective is, it's a unique perspective, but it makes me think what what can someone do from for example somebody sitting in my shoes because i have people who are 
in the city there's like there's groups right there's like facebook groups and stuff that it's like it's about the opioid epidemic and the crisis going on and it's there's news articles there's creating visuals like representations of the overdose numbers in the city um if you were king of the world and i said garth here's the problem what can you what are you going to do to fix it like what can you do to fix it you're king of the world you can do anything what's the what's the perfect solution step by step well it's funny the problem i've been working on you know like i'm i'm like a lot of people like i really dream of a very different world like something that's radically different that's not based on just like profit and competition and you know what i mean i i'm I don't think capitalism is really good for the human spirit. <laughs> um, but the problem I've been working on right now is keeping my my people alive. You know, just having having people, including myself, not die. Yeah. And uh, and so that's a that's a much uh, less ambitious problem than changing the whole world. Just not dying is pretty much the minimum thing you could try and hope for. And so mm. if I was king of the world and I could solve the not dying problem pretty much overnight is yeah. that we are dying in huge numbers because the drug supply is contaminated, but everything that drug users are using, there's a pharmaceutical equivalent that's already been manufactured probably for decades, right? Mm. So unlike the, the pandemic last year where there was, there was no vaccine and no one knew what to do for, for months and months. Um, there's been a vaccine for the overdose crisis around for as long as there's been opioids pretty much, yeah. you know? Um, so we just have to change the rules. We just have to change some writing that's been written down and reinforced in, um, you know, provincial and federal capitals and around the world, but just in Canada mm-hmm. so that people can access that stuff. And then the other, so that's, you know, a, a legal regulated safe supply of, mm-hmm. of hard drugs. And then the other thing is to get the police out of the mix, to just have them stand down. So if I was king of the world, I'd say, hey, hey, cops, you have no role in this. Like, I don't yeah. see you all going to when someone has a heart attack, you don't show up there. You don't go to an operating theater to observe uh, like you don't go to someone's counseling session. So if, if, if um, you know, if the overdose crisis is really like a health issue or a, or a social issue, um, cops have no role. So yeah. if I was king of the world, I'd say, stand down, you know, go, go, go call in sick, go have a fucking donut, whatever. Just don't, don't go do this. And, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, once people are not going to jail, getting a, a pharmaceutical version of something, um, they don't have to do crimes on the street. They don't, there's organized crime isn't, isn't profiting off of drug sales. So you have like all kinds of um, things that are a bother to uh, like, you know, regular citizens, you know, um, or like the, the role of organized crime in society is not very positive. So taking the fuel out of the gas tank uh, changes that a lot, you know, like organized crime does run on drugs to a greater ex- or lesser extent. And yeah. you take that out of the mix. I mean, you change the world a lot by ending the drug war and mm-hmm. that's, what's going to happen. And, and, you know, I, I think governments always wish that they could somehow do something that looked positive without doing that, but there's nothing short of it. It has, it has to be that, you know, yeah it's a it's a very very i said this a few times it's a very very sensitive manner 
to conduct that because as much as I'm with you on this, I want the war to end. It's not something that I enjoy. I don't like knowing people die. I don't like seeing posts about it. I, right? I don't like, I, it genuinely impacts me when I hear the stories from Crackdown and when I read stories and I've, I've tried to educate myself as much as I can and talking to people on the subject, they very, very much have a, I want to fix this mentality, but I don't know how, mm-hmm. but it's also, I think there comes with like, there's also a laziness with the average everyday person thinking, Oh, somebody has got to do something. And everybody wants to say somebody, but who? Well, you, like, how do you do it? And then we band together, show the higher powers how it goes. But you said capitalism and socialism is, you know, might not be the best option, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a sensitive subject that's um, definitely, I definitely don't know enough about, but it's definitely something that I, uh, I don't want to see more. I don't want to see more deaths or hear more about stories. It's, it's sad at the end of the day. It's not a good story. It's sad. Tell you um, about, about a kilometer from where I'm sitting right now is where the very first hard drug arrest happened in Canada in 1908. Wow. And it happened because um, white people in Canada are, you know, like just very vulnerable to getting, uh, a big fear on about immigration and they yep. are now and were then, and they had a big uh, a rally down at city hall, which was right, you know, almost across the street from the Balmoral back in the day, back in 1907, they had a big rally there. It was the Asian exclusion league had a big rally against Chinese immigration into Canada. And this was not just like, um, you know, random people. This was the, the city's great and good. You know, they came up in fine carriages and they had a big rally, and then they went and smashed up Chinatown and smashed up Japantown. They went on a big fucking riot for two days, terrorizing yeah. those communities. And after that happened, the federal government sent a guy out here to just uh, look into whether people, businesses around needed uh, compensation for the damage and stuff like that. This guy found out that, oh, my God, there's, um, there's opium being manufactured here in Chinatown. And uh, not only that, but he was given testimony that – um, these uh, foreigners were using opium to corrupt white women and girls. And he okay. wrote this in his report back to Ottawa. And he said, we got to do something about this. So they made opium illegal the next year in the Opium Act of 1908. And they arrested the first person shortly thereafter. But before 1908, people just smoked opium, right? It's this black tarry stuff. Uh, let's see if I can show you some. No. Yeah. Just oh, this sec, is wild. Just a sec. Just a sec. Let me see if I can. Uh... It's like uh, I don't want to. I don't want to dump oh, yeah. this out, but I don't know if you can. Yeah, uh... I don't blame you. Hang on a sec. Let's. Oh just... yeah. Hang on. I don't know the... why I'm looking nar, down. Nar, like... nar, nar. There you go. Oh my. Oh yeah, there so, it is. So it's like it's a it's kind of a tarry mess, but you stick it in a pipe and smoke it or eat it or whatever. Anyway, no problem. People aren't overdosing off of that. And it wasn't yeah. illegal, but then they make it illegal. So now you can't have people having little factories or opium dens. Um, people are having to smuggle it around. So you need something smaller. 
So eventually you get to heroin and then you need more bang for the buck. So eventually you get to injecting heroin and the decades yeah. go by and heroin, the same laws, the same laws are in place and the same um, action from police is happening. And it's increasing, you know, the Nixon wants the war on drugs, police get, get funded more. They're chasing yeah. heroin harder. So heroin has to get smaller and stronger. You get what they call China white. You get the overdose crisis in the nineties here yeah. from strong heroin. Then you get fentanyl, you get car fentanyl and it's like a fucking arms race, right? They keep chasing yeah. after this stuff. So people got to keep chasing, making it smaller. Well, I mean, that's why, that's why, you know, the drug war has caused the overdose crisis. The laws that are based on racism have led to this situation. And it's just, mm. there is no way, uh, moral way or logical way that you can keep doing those laws knowing this. You know, they, they just, they can't exist. They were founded in, for the worst reasons and they create the worst effects. So uh, yeah. this is also known as they saw this in prohibition, alcohol prohibition. Everyone drank yeah. beer, alcohol became illegal. Then everyone had to be drinking moonshine because they had to make something smaller and easier to yeah. take away and take around. And then they made alcohol legal again. And most people went back to beer. I mean, people still drink right. hard stuff, but the most popular alcohol <laughs> drink is beer. Yeah. And see, they make, I think it's also what they make. It seems to me if it's illegal, they'll make the smallest amount possible that much stronger to compensate. That's right. If, whether that's conscious or not. And then it sounds like the same thing with the drug war. And it's mm -hmm. just. Yeah. Cause you can send fentanyl in an envelope. You know, uh, like yeah. like by airmail, but just by in, in the post, right? You don't you have to have a shipping it. container full of bales. Like it's just it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's like, yeah, and that and that makes it harder and harder for the authorities to detect. So it's uh, mm. makes a lot of sense. Would, and then of course they're yeah. just disrupting the traditional heroin trade. You know, heroin's made out of poppies. Poppies yep. are grown in specific places in the world, harvested, yep. made. You know, and and they got it. There's big transit routes to get it to the markets well you can make fentanyl right here in vancouver or or anywhere easily so um because there's been so much pressure on those transportation routes so many drug war disruptions they've really yeah. incentivized people to make it in a lab instead of in a poppy field right and right um and and so uh, fentanyl is chemical and it's much more dangerous than uh, heroin which is mostly made out of opiums or uh, you know opium poppies yeah Jeez. Oh man. Yeah. There's, do you think then hearing that, would it almost be better to put like a, as controlled as they could do it instead of making it illegal, make it like almost like a drinking age type of deal, like 18 up kind of thing. I know it's a, it's a oh, weird. Sure. I mean, you could, you could, you could, better. you could regulate yeah. <laughs> uh, drugs however you want, right? Like if you try and buy booze in Canada, it's different in different provinces. Yeah. Like uh, there's a corner store just over there. I can't get beer in it, but if this was Quebec, I sure could just go down to the Depeneur and no problem. So different provinces have different ways of regulating their substances. Sure, you could do that. There's lots of different arrangements. You could, you know, have a, a age that you had to do it. You could, I mean, I don't know. There's like people could actually sit down and blueprint that out, you know, yeah. and we wouldn't. It doesn't need to be like a market, like a free market, like booze, you know, where where uh, beer is constantly like pr promoted to you and advertised. You don't need to have like a uh, you know, whole industry around making it look cool. You, you could decide to do it a different way, but it's like the first thing is to take the laws off and then you decide together what kind of regime you want to come in place of it. And yeah. I would argue don't have police at that table, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, that's when it gets very, very 
sensitive. People don't want to maybe go opinions or they might get looked at a different way or judged by their peers by or their community even just to do make those choices and side with what they believe in. So it's, uh, it's tricky. Yeah. Finding a way to almost like, I almost feel it can't go from zero or from a hundred all the way down. I almost feel like it has to like go down slowly, whether it's uh, how it's done is a, uh, I don't know. We've had but lots like of suggestions theory. about that. We've been yeah. advocating for prescription heroin. So not yeah. just, not just like a liquor store with heroin, but you know, where people get it prescribed instead of methanol, mm-hmm. you get it prescribed by a doctor. Um, you know, they make this stuff called diacetylmorphine. That's pharmaceutical heroin that is manufactured in the world. So uh, mm-hmm. it is possible they do this in some other countries with uh, quite a bit of success. We have not had very much success in Canada uh, getting that off the ground. So, um, you know, that we do have uh, gutless cowards leading governments who just don't want to do this sort of thing. So yeah. um, it, it is hard, but we, we do have these intermediary steps suggested. We've also suggested mm-hmm. like a, a heroin buyers club where people uh, could be members, drug users could be members, pool our money, be able to access and buy that pharmaceutical grade heroin, distribute it and use it to ourselves. Uh, And the only thing we would ask of the authorities is just don't arrest us for doing that. Just just give us the carve out, give us the exemption from the law and let that be legal. Uh, They haven't been interested in that either. So it's, um, you know, we're we're trying to find those intermediate steps, Uh, but you got to know to really diagnose the, the, the problem. You just have to see it in its whole systemic um, entirety that shows you what the ultimate solution is. But of course we're, we're fighting for the increments all the time, like safe injection sites, naloxone, yeah. that sort of thing, you know? Right. You're fighting, fighting for the, yeah, like you said, the increments of a uh, little bit, little victories here and there to keep people from dying at the end of the day. Right. That's, that's the goal. We should think about it too, is that um, most things that are a health issue or something, you know, that the politicians often say now that this is a health issue. Uh, they just, there's no, there's no role for people's sensitive opinions or bad feelings or, 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 or political uncertainties. You know, like, like there's like the cancer clinic that my grandmother went to, there was no like neighborhood protest about it opening. There was no like big Facebook book group that decided they didn't like that. They had um, what's that stuff in there that the chemotherapy drugs and stuff yep. in there, interferon and all that. Right. Like oh yeah, people, people just like, Oh yeah, that's, that's how the, the doctors know what they're doing. Just let them do their thing. Right. Yeah. Nobody questioned it. Yeah. So it's, it's because this has been a criminalized group of people, right? Cancer patients aren't criminalized. Uh, they, no. f- I mean, face a lot of, a lot of fucking obstacles, right. But not the, the law uh, isn't, isn't one of them. And so it is when you have a group of people, that's when you get all these sensitive and, and, and people feeling, Oh, we can't do it. You know, it's, it's because they just harbor this, this uh you know, dislike of uh, drug users. And that comes from the law itself. Law is who says, is where, you know, it's the code where we see who's in and who's out, who's, who's uh, doing things so bad, they should have their, their liberty taken away. Right. There definitely is a stigma around like drug users, all that stuff with when it comes to because of the law. And like you said, because of the main, like mainstream media, and then it, I almost feel too when they show overdoses and everything going on in statistics, they do it in like a way of instilling fear in you instead of saying, yo, this is a problem we're showing you. How the fuck are we fixing it? Mm-hmm. Like, what can we do? And that just, to me, it seems like it's, I don't know. I don't know. It's uh, it's bigger than, uh, 
I'm trying to wrap my head around it. I think that's uh, that's my biggest challenge with it and understanding. I think that's why I appreciate Crackdown and you and you coming on the show is to the goal to give me the utmost perspective as I can get on this issue so that I can convey this in my everyday life when more often than not, and it's crazy, every day this subject comes up. And a lot of times I'm one of those people, I know not a lot of people are like this, when they have, somebody's asked like asked an opinion on something, right? And they immediately jump in and tell, tell you what they think. However, more often than not, they don't have the right information or they don't have enough information. Instead of saying, I'll typically find myself, well, I don't have enough information on that. I can't get into this with you. It's not something I'm educated on well enough or even the correct sources. And that's something that I appreciate you being able to enlighten me on and educate me on today. Yeah, I mean, I'm just fortunate that I have uh, a a group, uh, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, where I learned a lot about this stuff from policy. Like people like Dean Wilson and Laura Shaver taught me. Laura taught me how to talk about my own drug use without, without being ashamed, you know, without sort of uh, couching it in so many qualifiers, you know, um, and I, every episode we make it, it makes me do more research and talk to more interesting people. So I learn stuff all the time, That's awesome. you know, and, and it can also be so complicated and overwhelming. The easiest thing to do and for listeners or watchers of this show to do is, yep. is, uh, uh, um, learn naloxone, you know, it's, it's actually pretty simple. Like I could teach you over this thing, you know, Um, and you can get it almost anywhere. And I think everybody should learn it Um, and everybody should have it. It should be part of every first aid kit because you don't actually know, you know, in your, in your life, you probably have, you probably know people who, who might use it, you know, and also, you know, if your grandmother's taking pain medication and has a bad interaction with some, something else she's taken. You can use it there too, you know? So it's like anywhere where there's a possibility of an opioid overdose, um, you know, it's worth learning that. It, you can save people's lives. You know, it's it's a simple thing to learn. It also will make you feel like you have a bit of agency. It's also makes you feel like you could be part of a movement because this is not something that was gifted to us by the authorities of the government. We fought to get access to Narcan. Uh, they told us originally, oh, no, 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 no. It's only for medical professionals. You idiots out there couldn't possibly uh, be smart enough to use it. And we're like, no, 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 we can figure it out. Um, yeah. And so yeah, the- that's right. And, yeah. and, and there's people yeah. uh, that actually stole this stuff, like managed to liberate it from medical facilities and, and, and you know, smuggle it around, distribute it to drug users and stuff before yeah. it finally became legal. So we actually we want it. It's like, it's our thing, you know? And so we want to invite everybody in society to be part of what we pride away from uh, the, the, you know, the back closet at a hospital or in an ambulance locked up or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's all. Oh man. I think you're right. I definitely agree with you. I think, I don't know if there's like a video or you do a tutorial even one day, or I'll have you back on the show. Fingers crossed the technology works a bit better next time. If you, um, uh, you look up naloxone training.ca, there's a video yeah. there that'll walk you through. Good and at video. the end of the video, if you can get a little certificate that says, boom, boom, I know how to do it. And Oh, no kidding. Yep. That's it. Way easier. Yeah. I mean, Perfect. I have shown people how to do this in a parking yeah. lot, walking to their car. It's not too hard. It's not rocket science. Eh? Mm-hmm. Perfect. But it's weird. Oh, no, you idiots can't figure it out. Please. 
watch us. Yeah. Watch us. Man, okay. Yeah, I definitely will do that. Naloxone.ca? Yeah. Naloxonetraining.ca. Training.ca. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so I know what I'm doing in a minute. Um, That's awesome. That's awesome. Garth, brother, I really am super grateful you were able to make time this evening. I know we went a bit over uh, our scheduled programming time, and I apologize for the uh, difficulties at the beginning with uh, the tech. I appreciate your understanding and patience. And uh, yeah, man, I can't. Uh, next time I'm in Vancouver, I'll uh, I'll treat you to a pint or two. Or three. Uh, thanks very much. So, well, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast, Glenn. It's is a really good chat. And um, take care. Be safe. Keep six. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. So um, about the yeah, I'll uh, send you my email, and then you can we transfer me the uh, me transfer me the uh, the file. Hopefully, it uh, it's yeah, just a search for the Zoom. Okay, I'm gonna Zoom just uh, hang on. I'm just gonna uh, stop the recording yep. now. Perfect. Uh, and I'll just hang on to make sure.